I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Marissa. She has lupus. Let's talk about it. Um, all right. Well, this is uh, this is going to be interesting because we are diving into a topic that uh, over six years of doing this podcast, um, we've we've only scratched the surface once, long time ago, and I, like always, don't remember a fucking thing about anything we've ever talked about. So this is a great learning opportunity for myself, but also I feel like a pretty great learning opportunity for everybody else listening at home. Uh, we are joined by Marissa, all the way from New York. New York City. Western uh, West New York. York yeah. Western New York. Uh, yeah, you got it. What? Fox Rochester. That's the, that's, the, that's the only, that's the only, I don't even know where Rochester is. Um, uh, sorry, Marissa. Yeah, yeah, please, please uh, don't mind me. Uh, Marissa, how about, we, how about we kick this whole thing off with a, uh, your, your description of what lupus is. Okay. Um, well, lupus is like a, shit show and like a dumpster on fire just rolling down the street kind of all at once sounds fun um, people kicking, it is. People, a lot of people fun. kicking it and throwing gasoline on top of it yeah, as yeah. it rolls down the street <laughs> yes but the real definition or the easiest way i can explain it is it is a chronic autoimmune disease and inflammatory disease basically my body um doesn't recognize its own cells and tissues and organs so it's constantly attacking itself jesus Whoa. That That's sounds problematic. It's very, an issue. Yeah, very, yeah, no shit. <laughs> that, uh, I just can't, guys. I can't help but bring up the fact that we. Well, I, I asked the guys to listen to this recent Radio Lab episode last week that just came out, and it was. It's all about the placenta, mm. and uh, it talks about why um, women have a much uh, heightened risk of getting autoimmune disorders because. And it's in large part to do with the placenta and the body sort of the female body evolved to um, fight off the placenta because it grows in your body as a foreign organ. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm so curious, trippy. I'm curious with the, the the I know that we might be getting ahead of ourselves now, but with the work that you've done in uh, advocating for uh, more awareness around lupus, is there way more? Do you notice that there's more women that seem to be affected by lupus? Hmm. There are. So 90% of lupus patients are women. That's Whoa, crazy. 90%? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Brian set that up because he knew and he wanted, he set it up so, oh that, God. He, so that everyone listening would think that. Did you actually know? You knew it was 90%? I, I, I knew it was more. I, I couldn't remember what the stat was because they listen in the radio lab wow. episode. They go through a bunch of them that are, are a lot, but I couldn't remember 90%. It, that's well, a that's, staggering amount. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. wild. It was around, like, there was something about, it was autoimmune, autoimmune disorders in general are like, you, you're, you're, like you know, 80% like, female. You're like way, way, way more likely, females yeah. are way more likely to get autoimmune disorders Crazy. Than, than, than males. So, so Marissa, then let's, let's, let's dive into your history with this. You're, how old are you now? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm going to be 44 soon. <laughs> no. oh, well, well, okay. I, I was fully expecting you to be like, I'm 23. Uh, all right. Uh, so, so, well, congratulations. Uh, you look great as a, as a 44 year old. I, that you, uh, you very, when were you diagnosed? Um, so I've had symptoms since I was eight, but I didn't get diagnosed until I was 23. Whoa! Wow. So you were diagnosed. So you were diagnosed. Uh, tw- you were diagnosed 20, twenty years ago, like at the age that you look. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, I. So we we recorded one episode a long time ago on lupus. I wasn't present for the for the recording. Uh, I did listen to it, and it was many years ago now. And something that I do recall, and I'm just trying want you to kind of clear this up for 
for me, for us, because, you know, Jeremy doesn't remember anything anyway. Um, I remember there being just, just like crazy laundry list of symptoms. And I Mm. also recall, um, also recall hearing that it, that it is a really challenging condition to, to get to a diagnosis. Um, I mean, I guess that, I guess that sort of explains things when you say that you've had symptoms from, from as early as eight up to a diagnosis at 23. Yeah. So actually they average the diagnosis time frame for most people to be between three and six years. Um, Because there is that long list of symptoms, it mimics so many other diseases. And the issue is usually a lot of the symptoms don't happen at the same time. So if you go to the doctor and you're like, I just feel really tired. And then six months later, it's I'm getting these weird fevers or I have this weird like joint pain, but they're not all coming together. It's very easy to see why, well, maybe you're run down, maybe you're stressed out. um, Maybe it's more arthritis. So it's, it's sort of like all these different puzzle pieces. And that's why I always tell people, if you're not feeling well, it's a really good idea to make lists, um, journal how you're feeling so that when you do see the doctor, you can say, I notice when I go out in the sun, I get these rashes and I have these weird fevers plus this pain or this fatigue. And then that hopefully sends like this light bulb moment of, hmm, these are all symptoms of lupus. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when I grew up in the 80s, which you guys probably weren't born yet. um, (laughs) Jared and I were. I wasn't. I mean, just on the cusp. 88. I was born 88, all right? 90. 90. 89. So here I am growing up in the 80s and I'm in the doctor's office a lot and we never heard the word lupus ever. Like I didn't even know it existed and I was never tested for it, even Mm. though I had clear cut symptoms of it at the age of eight. So, so you, I I know that you have a a pretty interesting story in terms of how you actually ended up with your diagnosis. Can you run us through that? Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I had symptoms through like my teen years and then through college. And I went to school to be a nurse. I was almost at the end of college and I was living in Fort Lauderdale at the time. I was crossing the street and I got hit by a drunk driver in a pickup truck who was going around 50 miles an hour. And I spent almost a year in recovery. Um, But that event was, you'll hear a lot about like triggers with chronic illness and especially with lupus and autoimmune disease in general. But so that was my trigger. Um, And that actually, while I was in recovery from my injuries from being hit, all of my symptoms came out now at one time. So now it was really easy for the doctors to see kind of all of it at once. Um, But, you know, you brought up women and the placenta and things like that. I just want to throw this in there. Pregnancy is actually one of the biggest triggers of lupus. Like a lot of these autoimmune diseases have a hormonal component to them. Mm -hmm. So when the woman has the baby and those hormones drop is usually one of the most common times that symptoms of lupus will come out. Mm, Wow. Wow. That's so, I mean, okay. So just to like rewind a little bit there. It's one thing to get hit by a fucking truck. Right? Yeah. Like that is, that's nuts. But at then 50 miles at 50 hour. miles per hour, like a, tra- a goddamn truck. I mean, getting hit by anything at that speed is a lot. Um, but then to, to, to pile on top of that, all of a sudden, all of these symptoms of your disease. I mean, how, like, what was that process like? Like how, how brutal was that year? 23 was definitely one of the worst years of my life. (laughs) Um, To be honest with you, it's, it's very foggy for me. Um, Luckily, I don't remember actually, I remember the truck and I remember seeing the truck, but I don't really remember too much after that. And then I just have like certain memories of being in the hospital. Um, You know, I had serious internal injuries, so I was really out of it those first few weeks, but Then I wound up having this small stroke and while I was in the hospital and these bizarre fevers and these rashes. And of course they said, you know, well, is it because I had a head injury? Um, Does she have an infection with these, you know, fevers? And then sort of all this testing took place. So actually I was sort of in the best place possible um, for all of those symptoms to come out because I had this amazing like team of doctors, Mm -hmm. but 
That was a really hard year. Uh, I write about, I talk about it a lot in my memoir just because, you know, I think we go through these seasons of these really dark moments when you have a chronic illness. And mm. that was probably one of the the darkest. And I really, you know, you're in the hospital. You're, I was in a trauma unit. So I was alone in a room. Not a lot of people could come in to see me. Um, so most of my time was spent alone. So you have a lot of time to think. And, you know, there were moments there when I just really thought, like, why, why did I even survive? Like, because I felt like my life was completely over. Like, I, I couldn't even, like, feed myself at that point because of all the injuries. And I was like, why didn't I just die in that moment? Because this, mm. this was not living. It was, like, barely hanging on. Yeah. How, yeah, how, how, uh, how fucked up did you get when you got hit by the truck, like what happened to your body physically outside of what was happening from your, uh, from lupus? So, you know, I had a head injury, but for me, I think some of the worst injuries were my ribs on my right side broke and they split my liver into multiple pieces. So I had a lot of internal oh. injuries, uh, internal bleeding. Um, and then I had like a fractured pelvis and elbow and these like small fractures. Um, but when your liver is sort of regenerating and clotting and whatnot, you're, you have to lie flat. So I was like really flat on my back for months. And then, you know, you don't walk around, you lose all your muscle. And so then you kind of have to go through physical therapy and rehab to, you know, be in a wheelchair and then to be able to walk with your walker and then be able to walk with your cane at 23 years old. And mm. I was just like, holy mm. crap, like this is, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, you go from like a, even though I was sick, like I, I dealt with flare ups, which I didn't know at the time were flare ups, but I had these moments where I was not feeling well, you know, I still worked. I was a bartender at night. I went to nursing school during the day. I was always on the go. I was ready to start my career. And then I had all these nurses taking care of me and I had to learn how to walk again. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was an experience. And, and through that experience, um, uh, you know, it was 20 years ago now, but like, do you remember, do you remember at what point while going through all that physical therapy that you, you got the actual diagnosis of lupus? Like, was it within that span of a year or, or, or did that trigger, um, pop up after the accident and, and you, it, it still took another chunk of time before they, the word lupus was actually like dropped in your lap. Yeah, no, I got that in the hospital about three months after I got hit. Um, it was before I started the the physical therapy. Mm -hmm. What, I, one of the things that we've, we've heard a lot about on the show in the past is like the, the, the feeling of of like gratitude and like a, like a sort of perspective shift when someone actually receives a diagnosis. Um, for you in this very unique scenario, what was that like for you to, to actually receive a diagnosis while you were managing all of the fucking physical pain that you were, you were going through because of the accident? I think I would describe it sort of as like a bittersweet moment. I think there is that element of relief when we have a diagnosis because it's like, thank God, like I can put a name to this. I know I'm not crazy because, you know, people make us feel like we're crazy. Doctors make us feel like we're hypochondriacs. And it's like, I know that I suffered all these years and it wasn't all in my mind. Like this is mm. real. And someone's finally acknowledging it. So you get like that validation. And for me, that was really important. Um, but then on the flip side, I was like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Like, <laughs> mm. like what else can like one person like go through at, at one mm. time? And I think just being young and, and naive of like, okay, so you're going to give me a medicine and we're going to get rid of this. And it's like, well, no, there's no cure. Yeah. So it's sort of like you're, you're thankful in a way. And then all these other emotions that come with the diagnosis kind of flooded at the same time. Yeah, no shit. How did the, you know, you mentioned earlier how, you know, it's like, you know, why am I even, why am I even fucking here still? Um, what, how did you deal, how did you, how did you end up moving forward with that? Because, uh, you know, that you you get all this, you get all this shit dumped under your lap um, all at once. Um, and 
you know, you've you've got these crazy these crazy injuries that affect your day to day life. You know, affects the way that you think about the future. Then you've got chronic illness that's dumped on you that now is you're gonna have to manage for the rest of your life. And and you know, just that, at, especially at 23, looking trying to like look out into the rest of your life is very is is hard to do in the <clears throat> in the best of circumstances let alone with with a condition that's going to that that you didn't have and now you and now you will or or you didn't know you had and now you will for the rest of your life how did you move on how did you deal with those thoughts and how did you how did you move on from those thoughts um after you got your diagnosis and started to deal with it so that was something that was sort of like a roller coaster. Like it didn't happen right away and it didn't happen all at once. Like I sort of just went like up and down with the emotions for a long time. Um, I think I was really angry at first. I definitely went through a period where I was sort of pissed because I kind of felt like every single thing in my life from my career to my independence, my health, my mobility, it was taken from me in a matter of seconds. And I sort of just, I mean, I was mad. I was upset about it. Um, And then I sort of just shifted over time in the hospital. I have a really strong faith. Spent a lot of time um, thinking about that of just, you know, medically, every like trauma surgeon I talked to, they're like, you should not be here. Even this, even I just remember there was one trauma surgeon and he's like, I don't even know how you made it to the hospital. He's like, you definitely have someone looking out for you because you should be dead. And I think from a doctor, you know, that's an interesting statement. Um, But I was, I just would, over time, I just had this belief of there is no reason that I should have survived. So I have to believe that there is something more here for me or that there's something I still need to do. And I'm just not done with it yet. Mm. Um, So I think I, I held on to that and that was my hope. And I also had, you know, an amazing mom, an amazing grandmother, um, and friends that I think spoke a lot of encouragement and hope and love into me, knowing that that was a time in my life where I really needed it. Mm. What does, um, you know, I mean, over the last 20 years of living with lupus, um, what does, you know, you said there's no cure, uh, so what does treatment look like? And, and also what does lupus do to your body? So they say no two cases of lupus are alike. And it is so true. I mean, I've met thousands of people and I maybe have only met one person where we have a lot of the same like organ involvement or symptoms. So lupus will attack your brain. It can attack your brain, blood, skin, kidneys, lungs, and heart. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's going to attack all of those. Um, a lot of people just maybe have kidney issues. So depending on the severity, they might need treatment or they might need dialysis or they might need a kidney transplant. Um, so there's mild, moderate, severe of everything for me personally, lupus always attacks my blood. Uh, I've had, you know, a couple of small strokes. I have a brain aneurysm right now from it. Um, I have, I've had vasculitis and blood clots and things like that. Um, But I've never had any kidney involvement, you know, like it's attacked my heart at times. Um, Those seem to be like my weaker areas, but I'd say on a regular basis, and these are more common, are things like, you know, severe fatigue, um, random fevers, pain, rashes, and I can't go in the sun, which is why I look like a vampire. Um, but sun is one of the biggest triggers. Sun and heat are, uh, one of the biggest triggers for a large percentage of lupus patients. Um, you know, so, I mean, those are more common. Right. And, and so I, I suppose that because every, every case of lupus is so different, the treatment looks so different from, from person to person in your case. Um, like, are you, are you, does your medical team kind of focus on treatments that are, that are aimed towards, um, like what's the word here? Like fixing your blood or like the way that it, yeah. Targeting specifically your blood. And and if, if that's the case, what, what is, what do those treatments look like? I think the treatments are more aimed on one 
getting rid of inflammation, like trying to get the inflammation down to shutting off your immune system because our immune system's on overdrive. Basically our, mm. our body's attacking itself and it, it attacks itself to the point where it damages the tissue or it kills the organ. So as far as treatment, you know, and then you, and then you have treatments that are just more for like symptoms. If you have like joint pain right. and, and things like that. So some of the most common treatments are steroids. Those are a big one. Um, anti-malarials like hydroxychloroquine and flaquinol, which we all heard a lot about during COVID. That's a first line treatment for lupus patients. That's oh. usually the first major treatment that we're put on. Um, if you have more active disease, they'll start to use older chemotherapies, which I've been on, um, when I had the vasculitis. And so all of these things are aimed at basically slowing your immune system down or shutting it off entirely. And, and are these treatments like, so for me living with CF, like I take 40 pills a day, you know, I do my nebulizer for 30, 40 minutes in the morning, 30, 40 minutes at night, like for you, is it, is this a, is the, is treatment for your lupus a daily activity or is it more so when you have flare-ups or when things start to get worse than they are? Yeah, no, I've been on medicine every day for the past 20 years. Um, you know, at times it's more, if, if I'm in a really bad flare-up, I'll have, you know, the daily meds plus usually infusions at the hospital. Um, and those are typically like once a week. So it really depends. It depends if it's attacking an organ. Like if I'm not having any crazy organ involvement, I'm on, you know, um, hydroxychloroquine and, and steroids and a couple other pills every day. If it's mm -hmm. going crazy and I'm in a flare up, then I'm usually in the hospital once a week getting an infusion of something. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends like how active mm -hmm. is the lupus. When, uh, when hydroxychloroquine became like uh household name uh, a household name and and uh, everybody thought it was going to potentially be the cure for covid um did you experience a was it hard for you to get uh access to the drug because everybody else thought that they wanted it yeah so there were a lot of well there were shortages everywhere here um i had issues getting it i had a lot of people in our community that couldn't get it you know the pharmacies were on uh, back order and then it became more of um you know, if you were on it for a while and they already knew that like, this is something that you took on a regular basis, then you kind of went to the front of the line. Mm -hmm. I think the most frustrating part of that, you know, and, and I've done a lot of interviews on hydroxychloroquine and I've done a ton of research on the drug and I've been on it forever. Um, it, it does work really well on viruses. My doctors, you know, are actually really happy that I'm on it now every day, like prophylactically. Um, but I saw a lot of people, just friends and family that I know are totally healthy, posting their bottles of hydroxychloroquine. And I was like, mm. you know, so that was that was frustrating because I knew a lot of people that are really sick that couldn't get it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it just became it just became such a farce with with in terms of like a political like there was, you know, yeah. there was that there was like that moment in time where, dude, you could have probably said if you if you mentioned the word hydroxychloroquine to a Democrat, they'd probably think that you were a Nazi. Like that was like that was like the level yeah. of craziness. Yeah, we're seeing was, it. We're seeing it now again with ivermectin. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a weird. It's totally we live in such a weird world. What do you uh, when you with some dealing having a having a condition that has flare ups? Um, and like Jer, I guess this is a little like you. Uh, I'm curious about this from your perspective as well, but I guess like you can control it a little bit better. You, you know, you, you have like methods of control, whereas it seems like with lupus, it's like, it's kind of a roll of the dice when those flare ups are going to, mm. are going to come on. And correct me if I'm wrong, if, if, if there are controllable factors there, but like from a mental health standpoint, dealing with something that just kind of makes its own mind up when it wants to fuck up your life more. How does that, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? How, what's your, what's your approach with that? And how has it affected you? I think it's something that, you know, I still struggle with like day to day. I mean, some days are good, you know, and then some days are really difficult because, and I'm sure that you understand this also, like it is really hard to plan ahead. Um, I have a lot of good intentions and, and want to do a lot of things. I'm, 
very type A and have a million hobbies. And then I'll wake up a lot of days and my body's just like, no, you're not doing anything today, you know? Mm. And it's, it's frustrating for me. It's frustrating for the people around me. Um, but I do know after living with it for two decades, um, usually a day or two of rest means so much to my body. Like I, I can usually come out of it through that, but I know that the longer I push myself, like I, I pushed myself when um, in May, which is Lupus Awareness Month, and my book happened to come out at the same time. So I pushed myself and pushed myself, and I knew that I was doing that, but I was like, but I kind of have to right now because I have like all these expectations and responsibilities put on me, and I felt like so many people were um, relying on me. And then I went into like a two-month flare-up where all like my major things of the day were eating and taking a shower. Like mm. that was it. Mm-hmm. So everything got shut down for like eight weeks. And then, you know, and it's frustrating because it's like, okay, I just literally missed eight more weeks of my life. Right. Mm. Um, and like the root and like the routine. I mean, we're all sort of collectively, we've been collectively going through this, you know, disruption over the past two years mm. with the pandemic and how it's all, you know, the, just that the, the feeling the feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on this, I'm on this good track. I have these habits. I've got these things that I've got rolling and it feels good. And then, and then like the carpet gets pulled out from under you. And Mm -hmm. now you, it's like, it's not that you don't want to continue those habits. You just can't. And that, that disruption in your, in, in, in your, that, that life disruption, like, do you ever, do, do you feel like, when you come out of the flare up, you're almost like, Oh fuck, I got to get the ball rolling again on all this shit that I had cooking before. And I was, I was good then. And then I had this thing and now I got to, and now I got to, now I got to like, I've got all, I got to get this momentum moving again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, uh, my family tells me I'm like a bull, like the day I feel better. I'm like, let's go. You know, I'm like <laughs> a things I want to go do. And I usually do it. Um, but I think for me, and I, and I tell a lot of people that I talk to, and I, I talk about it a lot, like I, I journaled a lot. I journaled, especially in the beginning, those first few years. And it was through like this constant journaling of everything, like my food, my sleep, my drink, my medicine, my stressors, um, like life activities. I was able over time to see patterns. Like I know some very clear triggers at this point that will absolutely put me in a flare up. And so Mm. I do my very best to remove those as often as possible or as much as possible from my life. Um, Of course, you know, I can't do it a hundred percent, but I know that I've limited a lot of flare ups by limiting some of those things. So that, that in a way is helpful, but then, you know, something will happen out of like nowhere. And it's like, well, I wasn't expecting that. And it can totally knock me on my ass. Mm-hmm. Like something that you like, like a, like something that would then maybe fall into that category of things that in the future you want to avoid. But like up to that point, you had no idea that it would even, it would even have any effect on you. And then it does. Yeah. So, you know, like I grew up in New York city and then I'll give you an example. And then my family, we moved to Fort Lauderdale. So I had no idea neither did my family that heat and sun are some of the biggest triggers. I was so sick when I lived in Fort Lauderdale. Um, I was in a wheelchair for a very, very long time. Like my health was horrible. And then I came back up to New York uh, in my early thirties for a trip. And it was in the middle of winter and I hadn't been in winter in so long, like in a snow, freezing cold winter. And I did phenomenal. I felt amazing. I was able to lower my medications and it, it was And it was for a long enough period of time that for me, I saw, wow, the heat and the sun are huge triggers for me. Um, And I literally packed up my stuff. And six weeks later, I moved up near the Canadian border. And that's where I am now. Um, Hopefully one day make my way to like Iceland or something. Yeah, I was going to say, you should move to London, man. They get like three days of sun a year. (laughs) There you go. Like I'm, I'm open to it. And like, so now it's so clear to me. Um, I had to take a drive um, about a little over two months ago and just the sun coming in from the door. It was a long drive. It was for like eight hours one day. That is what triggered that. Plus I was already exhausted that eight week flare up. 
So the sun, if I'm in direct sunlight for 10 minutes now, I break out in such a rash and I get such a fever. Hmm. So it's, it's wow. so clear to me now, but I couldn't see that when I was younger. Like I really didn't think something like the sun was going to be that much of an issue. Do you ever, do you ever do vampire for Halloween? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so like legit, the sun yeah. is yeah. my nemesis. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. So I'm, I'm imagining, um, obviously, with the, the flare-ups and the unpredictability of them sometimes, it's probably... And, and with the way that you described yourself as a type A person and trying to go, go, go and do all these things, but then something happens and it just sort of like knocks you on your ass and you can't go places. Um, I kind of identify with, with some of that, but more so in the sense that like I have a lot of good intentions and want to go a lot of places and do a lot of things and meet my friends and hang out. And then sometimes my mental health just gets the best of me and I feel like I... I don't have the energy to do it anymore. And, and then I, I like back out of plans or do things like that. But I, sometimes I feel like it sort of negatively affects my relationships when I do that. Do you, what, what's it like for you managing relationships with people? Um, yeah, I guess, how does it affect your relationships? Um, you know, I think I've found over the years, like the right people in my circle that, understand it either because they're chronically ill themselves um, or they, you know, they deal with mental health issues um, or just family members and friends that that see who I am as a person and that when I do feel well or my mental health is, you know, having a a, a good moment that I do want to just do a million things and I want to make a difference and I want to create and and they know, they know me so well, they know when I'm having one of those off days or off weeks. Um, and I'm thankful for the people that, one, give me space when I need it and don't take it personally. And and mm. I'll sometimes, you know, say that up front, like this, just know this has nothing to do with you. Like, I know that I need to sort of just take some time to myself. My body needs to rest. Um I need to sort of regroup my headspace. I need to zoom my therapist or whatever it is. Um, and I think also like as a creative person, like I, I need that quiet time also to sort of recharge. I think it's just really important that people know, like, again, don't take it personally, but it's great if they're also there if you do want to talk. Sometimes you don't mm. want to talk, you know, you just yeah. sort of want to be by yourself. <clears throat> Yeah, definitely. I feel like sometimes some uh, of the best best things that like some of like the best quality time that like I've ever spent with either of you two is just like sitting watching something just and not, shutting the fuck up. not saying anything. <laughs> yeah. I uh you, you had mentioned earlier about like, you know, receiving this diagnosis and then going through this period of of kind of finding sort of finding purpose in life after diagnosis. Um can we can we talk a little bit about about lupus chick and the what what is lupus chick? How did that all begin, um, and and how did that evolve over the years? Yeah, so those first few years after after I was diagnosed and I got hit by the truck, um, I was really like bed bound or hospital bound. Um, that was like my mid twenties, and it was I was just felt like I was going like losing my mind because I was stuck in bed. And, you know, we didn't have the things we have today that you could like jump on Netflix or do a million other things online. Um, but I always loved to write. That was something I had done since I was young. So I started writing a lot, which was a way for me to sort of express myself. And um, I eventually saw that these things called blogs started 
you know, popping up and these were new. And I was like, okay, well, let me try this because even though I lived in Fort Lauderdale with like over a million people, I only knew one other woman with lupus. So I still felt really alone. And it was really in those first few years where we didn't even have the awareness that we have today on lupus. And it was so misunderstood that I would tell no one that Mm. I had it because I was actually really embarrassed and like ashamed of having this diagnosis. Um, you know, back then it was always like, well, can I catch that from you? Or, you know, if I was dating, it was like, well, if I kiss you, are you going to give that to me? And it was just like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to say anything at this point. Mm. So anyway, I built this blog and I felt like almost like in my world, you know, where you used to have like actual hard copy mail pen pals where you would send a letter. Um, this was a way for us to sort of connect online. Right. And the first few months, you know, we had like a couple of dozen hits and then a couple of hundred and then it grew and grew and grew. And gosh, it's been around now for 13 years. Um, I turned it into a nonprofit like six years ago um, up here in New York. I was Mrs. New York. I did a lot of work with the government. So that was really neat. And then through the nonprofit, um, I started a scholarship program for people with lupus that were in college. Uh, we just gave out our 13th scholarship. But the cool thing is lupus chick is not just lupus anymore. I mean, we have people in there with every single chronic illness that you can think of, because I think a lot of the things we talk about are universal. Yeah. And um, yeah, we reach like a half a million people a month now through our social media. Um, Lady Gaga wrote about us in her book. uh, We're the 35th chapter. (sighs) She wrote about the whole lupus chick story in her channel kindness anthology that came out last year. Well, that's a trip. Um, how, how did that feel? <laughs> that was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> and when I got that email, I was like, wait, what? I was like, I got to read this like six more times to make sure that I'm reading this correctly. Um, <laughs> but it was cool. Like her whole book is about just people or organizations that are basically paying it forward without, you know, expecting anything in return. Mm. So that was really neat to see, like, to kind of have that like acknowledgement and just be able to have that um, put out there on such a huge platform. But I never, Lupus Chick came to me in a dream. I woke up in the morning and I wrote it all down and I did it. And I never thought that it would be this ever. Mm. How, how, how did it, uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm curious like how you, how you saw it change, like something that starts online and, how did it change over the years that the, the, I mean, the internet has just changed so much over the past. I mean, especially from, you know, 2010 to now, like a, just a crazy, crazy snowball change. How did, how did it change from when you started it as the internet evolved and, you know, became more, you know, with the development of fate, like Facebook and social media and all that stuff. Yeah. When social media started, that's really when it kind of just like, I'd say like started like blow up. Um, obviously like Facebook was, you know, integral to it and, and YouTube and Instagram, like Instagram is definitely our, our largest um, platform at this point, or maybe not our largest, but our most engaging. Um, but I just think video, like people love to be able to watch things, um, being able to interview people and just being able to engage with people. Uh, you know, they're on the other side of the world, but they don't feel alone it's it's like you're right there you know and um it's just brought so many people together I remember gosh I want to say maybe seven years ago when we started using things like different platforms like Hootsuite and stuff like that Hmm. where you can engage more and the technology was just getting better and better our engagement grew so much because you had like new ways to reach people it's crazy. It's crazy to think about <clears throat> how, and you know, Lupus Trick is an example. His podcast is, is an example of like ways in which the internet can provide just this incredible platform for people to, uh, you know, realize that they're not alone. That there's yeah. people out there that are that are struggling with things, maybe the exact same thing that you are, and that you know, there's similar stories out there, and you can find community and everything. And and then equally fascinating that on the exact opposite end of that spectrum, there's a dumpster fire of every kind yeah, of sort, yeah. you know, happening. Probably more of that. And it, but that but <laughs> that it, but that it can exist. Like both of those things can exist, and it's kind of like it's just this shape shifting thing. Would you where, say? Uh, would you use the word harmonious? 
to describe it. <laughs> to, to describe the internet, I'd be I'd be hesitant to use maybe that un, unharmonious. Term. Maybe yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Um, like more uh, divisive. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, uh, Marissa, the, so, so Lupus Chick kind of took a life of its own, obviously. Um, and then, at what you know, you've mentioned it a couple times now, your book, uh, Chronically Fabulous, Finding Wholeness and Hope, Living with Chronic Illness. Um, it's, it's out now. The, the book is available now. Um, can you tell us about the, the process of writing the book? Um, you know, where did, that, where did that come from? And maybe give us also a little bit of insight into what is, what's the book all about? Sure. So, you know, uh, before I wrote the book, I was actually a journalist, like same around the same time that Lupus Chick started. I was a journalist for about 13 years. Um, definitely brought my body to the brink on that one. It was a very stressful uh, career. But mm-hmm. when I retired, I knew that I had wanted to write a memoir for years, but I really felt like it just wasn't the right time yet. Um, And then about three years ago, I really started to dig in. I felt like, one, I felt like I was telling the story over and over again to a lot of people and all the things that I learned, you know, like, because if I met someone, whether it was online or at a conference, like we'd have these long conversations and I'm like, I don't want to hoard any of this information. Like it Mm. should be given out and it should be given freely to anyone that wants it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wanted to show just hope of all the trials and then sort of like in a self-help way, like things that they can do to sort of learn how to navigate their own journey, no matter where they are on it. So I sold the memoir uh, to Broadleaf, which is a publisher here in the United States, um, about three years ago. And then I had six months to finish the book. So that was interesting. And Mm -hmm. then... um, So the book basically is a memoir, but it's also sort of has like that how-to and self-help component. And gosh, we talk about everything in there. We talk about career and relationships and food and medication and and sort of the holistic view of taking care of yourself. You know, maybe not just relying all on, um, say, functional medicine or all on pharmaceuticals, but sort of finding the right path for yourself and Mm -hmm. just also your mental health, like all of the different things. Like I like to liken lupus and I guess you can really liken any chronic illness to water in the sense of it will seep into every single area of your life, no matter how hard you try to stop it. Like Mm -hmm. it finds a way to get into every little crack. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about navigating those, those ways. And um, a lot of the book is also has my grandmother in it. My, I lived with my grandmother uh, the majority of my life, and she was with me through all of it, like old school Italian. She was pretty tough, um, but I think she also helped form, you know, mold me into someone that never gives up. Um, she had me in the kitchen cooking every morning at seven o'clock. So food is a huge part of my life. And I talk a lot about you know, how my body changed over the years with food and how I use food a lot to help me with symptoms. Um, You know, I can't eat, I can't eat the way I did like 30 years ago, I get sick from it. So Mm. I have to be really like cognizant of what I'm eating. Mm. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's, I have a lot of recipes in there. It's sort of like a smorgasbord of everything, this book, I Mm. feel like. And what, what has been the reception since the book has been released? Oh my gosh. It's been amazing. It's doing so well. Um, you know, I, they always tell you don't look at your reviews because obviously people can be kind of mean online and there's always that like keyboard warrior. No, but, no, people aren't mean on the internet. <laughs> no, no, it's Never. very harmonious. <laughs> yeah. It, everyone has been amazing. Um, it's, it has hundreds of five-star reviews, which is incredible to me as just a writer that, you know, there hasn't been that one person yet. Mm. Um, but I get beautiful emails every week from strangers that they don't even have lupus. Like some of them are going through a divorce or some of them are dealing with infertility or loss of their parent. And, you know, cause I talk about the loss of my grandmother and how when we have those losses or we have this major stressor with a chronic illness, how it like can spiral our life out of control, you know? Um, and they write me the most beautiful letters of how it helped them in some way, some way. I mean, and that was the purpose of the book. Mm, 
In, cool. in terms of, uh, you mentioned career earlier too. Um, I'm curious how, uh, especially cause I think that this is probably a, a, a common sort of thought that a lot of people who live with chronic illness have, uh, I'm curious about you being an entrepreneur and, uh, and how your life sort of is different as an entrepreneur than it would have been say as a journalist, uh, you know, having to meet deadlines that are sort of put on you by other people rather than the ones that you have more control of over yourself. Um, what was that experience like? Honestly, it's the best thing I ever did. I always try to, you know, stress to people, like if there is something that you love, that you have such a passion for, that you're able to do on your own, you know, and you have a chronic illness, then, then find the way, like find that path because, you know, from journalism full time. And then I went into sort of freelance writing because I had had the experience at that point, I was able to make my own hours. If I didn't feel good one day, you know, I made sure I slept that day and I didn't work at all. And I didn't have anyone hounding me. Um, a lot of the times I wrote, you know, my articles and sent them in while I was in the hospital and no one ever knew, like they just mm. thought I was, you know, writing from home or something. They didn't even know I was sick. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, just not having we have so much pressure on ourselves anyway, just from like society, from life. Then you have all this extra pressure because you have a chronic illness, like to sort of remove as much as possible. Like that's my goal is remove as many stressors from my life as humanly possible on a daily basis um, mm. to be able to remove like stuff from other people who maybe don't understand what you're going through, mm. I think is um, a great idea. It's just finding something that can work for you. You know, a lot yeah. of like when we give out like the scholarships, I always stress to people like you don't have to be in a university. Like maybe you're in a graphic design like certification course or something that, you know, you're going to be able to do from home to financially support yourself will help pay for that because that's a way for them to take control of their life. Yeah, that's super cool. I, I've never really had that thought before, um, but hearing you talk about it, I think like how how important or how valuable could it be? Um, and look, listen, I, I know that entrepreneurship has its own set of stressors that comes with and it can be mm. very challenging, but certainly... The forever stress. The, yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the stressors of paying your bills and being able to, you know... The everything stress. And when you have employees, keeping, you know, them in their houses and stuff. I mean, there's, there's tons of things that come with it. But in terms of flexibility and being able to sort of work um, at your own pace, on your own time, um, I imagine that it's, it's really... It, it could be for a lot of people a really great option if they're doing something that they're passionate about, as, as you mentioned, I think it's super cool that your, uh, your, your scholarship, um, doesn't, uh, just have to be for somebody who's in university, mm. um, because, you know, a lot of, uh, great entrepreneurs don't necessarily become entrepreneurs by studying, um, academia in, in university, but, you know, comes from really like a plot, like learning how to, um, apply skills through other programs that, you know, lead them to running their own businesses. So I think that that's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Marissa, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask most of our guests, uh, and it's a two-part question. The first part is, what would you say is the biggest thing that lupus has taken away from you? Hmm. Honestly, I think lupus has taken away a lot of the doubts that I had about myself. Um, 20 years later, I think I've, I've learned that I'm an overcomer. Like I have overcome a lot of challenges despite some of the most horrific things that have ever happened to me. Um, I think it's made me a stronger person. What would you say is the biggest thing that lupus has given you? <sighs> I think lupus has made my purpose in life much more clear than I, than I ever had. Um, when I was younger, I thought my life was going to go a certain way, but lupus definitely put a, a different lens on it. I always love to help people, which is why I wanted to be a nurse and I do it now, but I do it in a much different way. And I absolutely love every single day that I get to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Marissa, I, 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 uh, I don't think we could have had a better guest to, uh, to refresh our brains on what the, what life with lupus is all about. Uh, this has been really amazing. 
if yeah. you uh, if you could do us a huge favor and just let all of our listeners know how they can keep up with what you are up to in life and how they can find the book. Oh, absolutely. So Instagram, uh, we're under Lupus Chick Official. Uh, they can come to lupuschick.com. We're under Lupus Chick on Facebook and on YouTube. And then Chronically Fabulous is the name of the memoir. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. It's in a lot of local bookstores. Um, it's at Target or on Target.com. Um, yeah, if you just type in Chronically Fabulous book, it will come up. Amazing. Sweet. Thank you for taking time out of your day today to sit down and chat with us. This has been really fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, folks, there you go. That was our conversation with Marissa all about lupus. And uh, it's just me here doing the sign off all by my lonesome. Uh, and, uh, you know, no, Brian's not here. Taylor's not here either. Uh, hey, don't yell. There's other people in this place of business. No, don't definitely don't yell that. God, I uh, hope you enjoyed that, folks. Uh, we had a lot of fun with Marissa and uh and thanks. Thanks for listening. And if you've been listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. And if you're listening on Spotify, hit the follow button. And uh, just so you know, we're on YouTube. You can watch our Feel Good Friday episodes and a bunch more content over there. So go check that out. And uh, listen, if you want to uh, let us know your thoughts about anything um, or you want to be on the show yourself, you can always send us a letter at letters at sickboypodcast.com. Or if you want to fill out the application to be on the show, go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact. Sick Boy Podcast is brought to you by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, Taylor McGilvery. Um, we are also big fans of Jeffrey Lonis, who's our manager. Uh, shout out to him. Donovan the Meerkat Morgan did the sound design on this week's episode. Big shout out to Lauren for all the work that she does on the podcast. And of course, we love our friends over at Take Part for providing us with the theme music for this week's episode. <laughs> Nope, stop that. Uh, that is it for this week. I'm Jeremy. Brian and Taylor are no longer with us. <laughs> and this and this is sick work. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.